You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we have a very exciting guest, the only American to be elected to a position with the African National Congress, professor, thinker, and philosopher, Frank Wildeson, who's here to talk to us about Afro-pessimism and how it relates to revolutionary theory. I'm one of 50 chancellors, professors at UC Irvine, so it's a great honor. Uh, I just received that distinction a few weeks ago. It's now December uh, 12th, and so about two weeks ago uh, that happened. And full professor, chancellor's professor, I also chair African American Studies, and I uh, teach uh, as a professor in the culture and culture and theory PhD program at UC Irvine. That's about um, 50 miles south of Los Angeles on uh, Highway 1. So uh, this book is a book of auto theory. I think it was made auto theory for most readers in mainstream um, literature was made uh, probably most famous by a few years ago by Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts in which um, one moves along in the storytelling narrative of a memoir. And then in various places, the memoir is woven into or with uh, critical theory and philosophical reflection on what's going on in the uh, persona's life and reflections on the world. So I think that uh, the notion that a book is either a book of critical theory uh, to be published by you know, Fordham University or NYU Press or Columbia University Press, or a book is uh, a memoir to be published by Ferris Strauss-Gerot or Random House. That Those two notions were blended together in the public imagination by Maggie Nelson. But my model for this uh, comes many years earlier uh, in which uh, Asada Shakur, who was also from New York and a member of the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army, uh, actually did this first for me in terms of where I came to this kind of genre in her book, Asada, an Autobiography. I think that uh, for about 20 years now, Afro-pessimism as a critical lens to interpret the structure, the paradigm of suffering for Black people and how and why uh, the paradigm of suffering for Black people can include the paradigm of, of transphobic and uh, homophobic suffering if the person is LGBT and Black, and can include the paradigm of economic suffering uh, from the Marxist analysis if the person is a member of the working class. Uh, but what Afro-pessimism does is says that those paradigms that explain the ways in which oppressed people suffer are shared by the suffering of black people, except for the fact that there is a essential dynamic to black suffering, which is singular and um, does not cut across other uh, races, non-black races and uh, genders and sexual orientation. And we sought to actually give more than symptomatic voice to that by uh, systematizing the actual structure of this. So 
I guess back in 2017, 18, I was asked by the New Press in New York to write a book of political essays, and by Verso Press in Europe at the same time, they asked me separately. And I thought, well, what is the best way to get across this highly dense uh, critical theory lens that has been circulating subterraneanly in the uh, chat rooms and social media of the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter have been circulating since 2008 in high school and college debate spheres, but has not been circulating in the public. And I thought, well, the best way to do that would be to blend storytelling and critical theory. And that's what I did. May I ask for another introductory question? Can you please briefly explain what Afro-pessimism is with relation to Afro-futurism? <laughs> I should be able to do that by now, but because I get asked so much. But sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't mean no, to be cliche. No, no, no. I, I actually, what, what I do is a shrewd pedagogic move. I, I think I've been asked that on about four podcasts and um, different radio interviews, and I have not studied Afrofuturism directly. I have studied it indirectly through uh, office hours and consultation with graduate students who have been involved with that. But let me put it in an oversimplistic way, which really doesn't cover it, since, since I have not, you know, I've read the archive of Marxism, I've read the archive of non-Black feminism and, and, and Black feminism. Um, but Afrofuturism, I don't really know that much about, except to say that what I think a lot of, from what I've heard and seen from the graduate students who have talked with me, is that a lot of Afrofuturism tries to imagine a different world um, of time and space, which could be a world of time and space of potential liberation for uh, Black people. And I am in no way, shape, or form uh, opposed to that. I think that one of the things that is problematic across the board is that the black imagination is so incarcerated that I'm open and celebratory of any movement that frees that imagination. However, there's one little caveat that I have. What pessimism does is similar to uh, Marxism and similar to uh, a Saidian post-colonialism and similar to, and I want to make this very clear, a revolutionary feminism, not a feminism that asks the question, how can women live better lives inside a society, but a feminism akin to, say, Kristeva and uh, more closely, Kaja Silverman, that says that the structure of, um, of gender uh, relations needs to be destroyed completely by destroying Oedipus and then destroying the very... Uh, way in which the nuclear family is imagined. So Afro-pessimism is a revolutionary lens. It does not ask the question, how can Black people live better lives, have better housing, have uh, into police brutality, um, uh, live more comfortably or, or in, in anti-Black in anti racist situations? Those are reformist questions. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to poo-poo those questions. What I'm trying to say is that one would not ask a Marxist um, how to make 
a better living condition for the working class under capitalism, because Marx, the, the dream that underwrites the, the analysis, says that capitalism is unethical and needs to be destroyed. So one of the things that, that Afro-pessimism uh, does that is, I think, and I want to say a caveat here, I think, uh, different than Afrofuturism, is it um, analyzes in, a, in um, rather static terms, asynchronic terms, what is the distribution of psychic and material power that organizes global civil society? And then it can make another move after that, which is to say, how does that distribution of power, which is to say, how is anti-blackness um, the kernel of organizing civil society wherever you are in the world? But then the next move is, well, how is that different in terms of its performativity, say, in um, uh, Harlem compared to uh, the black communities of Basra, Iraq, or the black communities of southwestern southwestern Iran. So it's a it comes at the problem of black being, offering an analysis of the structure of suffering, just as Das Kapital comes at the problem of working class being, offering an analysis of how um, the relational dynamic, something you cannot see or touch. Uh, makes workers suffer. And I'm not sure that that's the first um, point of attention and game for uh, Afrofuturism, because Afropessimism does not imagine what is or could be on the other side of an anti-Black world. That's, I think, the difference in a nutshell. Thank you very much. Um, since we're talking about the Black identity, um, can I ask you to go over both, like, what it, 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 does Afro pessimism make a difference between an African identity versus, uh, a, like, an American Black identity or Brazilian Black identity? Or is there, I, I guess, are there fundamental differences or are there, and what are the common threads uh, on top of that? Yes, it's a very good question. So, um, I'm glad that, we're, that I'm able to speak with the two of you at, a, at the level of abstraction that pessimism demands, <laughs> because um, sometimes when I'm on you know, uh, popular radio, I, I have to use the language of common speech, which is really anathema to the isms of analysis. Uh, and so what, it, what I mean by that, let me take it out of blackness for a moment so that the listeners can actually, because what I'm going to say is highly controversial and uh, is a major, major uh, point of debate in uh, black studies departments across the country and in the humanities uh, schools in general that house philosophy, conflict, and all these other things. So the first thing that, that if I were a highly theoretical Marxist, as opposed to a kind of uh, Anglo-American Marxist dealing with experience. If I was a kind of Marxist like Antonio Negre, which is the level of abstraction that Afro-pessimism aspires to, I would say that 
you have a person who is a brown woman working in a sweatshop in the Maquilladoras on the other side of the Rio Grande, who is basically in an, in an incarcerated situation in which she, uh, you know, has very few bathroom breaks, no uh, maternity leave, um, no feminine hygiene, um, ways in which to, um, the corporation will acknowledge those needs um, and work 16 hours a day for, for very little pay. And this is a Mexican identity and it's also a gendered identity. And then you have a white man in uh, Sweden who has a white Swedish identity uh, and he is, has a social safety net that you know is far and above what the Mexican woman has. Uh, he works uh, 40 hours a week and gets paid a decent wage. The problem, what the critical Marxists would say is that those two people are exactly the same at the level of the paradigm of the capitalist command modality. However, they live capitalism in extremely different experiential ways so that the way in which they live through capitalism as the hosts of the parasite of the capitalist. They're both, they're, both of their bodies are the hosts of parasitic accumulation of surplus value. However, so what that means is that both of them are exactly the same at the level of paradigm. But at the level of identity, it's like night and day between the ways in which they live. One person is going to live to a ripe old age and get a decent pension and the state will take care of so many things. Another person could die in her very young uh, youth. And so what I, why do I say this in, in response to your, your question is because one of the things that we're trying to say, and again, this is a controversial point in black studies, is that uh, blackness is essentially a paradigmatic position like the worker or to to capital to to marxism or the woman to uh radical feminism and then at the level of identity or lived experience there are many different kinds of black people number one and number two the same person is not going to is some oftentimes the same person is not going to be black everywhere they go. Yes. <laughs> but we're not really interested in that question, essentially, which is to say, like my friend Jared Sexton, will probably not be interpolated as a black person if he went to Bahia in Brazil, and he writes on mixed race identity. He probably will be interpolated 16 different ways if he went to Havana. But that's not really what Afro-pessimism is, is after, because I asked the question, how does Jared Sexton live as a person with a white mom and a black dad as he travels from country to country? Not interested essentially in that question. The question is, why is it that the black produces a phobic anxiety in every community around the world? That's the interesting question. Have you, uh, for me, I read... Um uh, Frank Fanon's Wretched, uh, Wretched of the Earth, and he kind of addresses it through the lens of colonialism. Um, but 
it would be interesting to see how, like, do you have an opinion of how that works in a country where for, in America, I guess, uh, it's, I don't know, I, I hope I'm not offending you, um, because like, yes, slavery is a form of colonialism, but then there's also, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know how to say this, but there's also a lot, there's uh, no, I guess, homeland. Uh, so do you think his analysis still remains relevant or is there an extra paradigm we need to add? Well, we, we uh, have, we have uh, Fanon as one of our patron saints. However, mm-hmm. I believe that every time he, he is in his, uh, his coffin reading an Afro-pessimist text on what we do with his work, he's turning over in his grave and groaning. Um, so I, 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 always, I, I often joke that when I, go, when I die and go to heaven and meet Fanon, I will bring with me the books of David Marriott so that Franz Fanon will uh, have a better idea of how to understand his own work. (laughs) (laughs) Let me put it like this. Um, What we think is, and and I'm I'm kind of glossing over because the we now of Afro-pessimist thinkers, activists, has even bled into visual artists and filmmakers and musicians. So this we is just growing, growing, growing across the globe in terms of the black community. But... I, let me just say that I, I, Frantz Fanon writes his first book in 1952 called Black Skin, White Mask. And in that book, he, the, the, the book intuits our analysis of slavery, even though it doesn't consciously understand that. And so we don't think of slavery as a historical event. Uh, we don't think of slavery as a place in Space and time, like this. Like may, may I interrupt? Who is we uh, in this equation? Because I just was slightly confused. <laughs> okay, so I, I say there's there 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 are some principally hardcore we's, uh-huh. uh, and and sometimes the we is not a person, but a book. Because sometimes the person has written books which are solidly Afro pessimist, and ones that are not. Uh-huh. So, um, I would say that. The work of David Marriott, who is a uh, black uh, Jamaican slash British person teaching um, in Pennsylvania in philosophy, uh, which he wrote a book called On Black Men, Then Haunted Life, Then Wither Fanon. Those are his three books. Those are essential to the grounding of of Afro-pessimism. And and I feel comfortable uh, claiming him. Uh, and Sadia Hartman, who's the recent MacArthur Award winner, winner um, whose book, Scenes of Subjection, is like the concrete foundation, along with two other books, um, David Marriott's On Black Men and uh, Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death, which is the one book written in 1982, published by Harvard University Press, which actually says to the world, look, there's been an archive of writing on slavery, but up to this point, those books on slavery have purported to define slavery, and they have not defined slavery, it doesn't invalidate them, but what they have done is they have reported on the, ex- on the lived experience of the slave. And so I, 
Orlando Patterson in bringing you this book, Slavery and Social Death, which does something similar to what Marx did with Das Kapital, which is to say, you cannot describe capitalism by touching the factory floor, by, by reporting on the suffering, the lived suffering of a, of a worker. Capitalism is an immaterial, in, invisible relation of structural violence. And I'm going to spend 532 pages in, in volume one and another 500 in volume two and volume three of Das Kapital to explain to you the relational dynamic. Patterson does the same thing. So I would take those books, Patterson, um, who is appreciative of Afro-pessimism but does not want to be claimed as one, I must put that on the record since he has, uh, Hartman and uh, uh, Marriott as kind of the the books in 97 that come to me and Jared Sexton and uh, Kiana Ross, who teaches at Northwestern, and Salamawit Tarefi, who is a major Afro-pessimist psychoanalytic uh, thinker from Ethiopia, who teaches at uh, Tulane, and uh, Patrice Douglas, who teaches at Duke University Press. And so we cobbled together, what is it that all these books are saying about the relational dynamic and then it became very clear. They're saying that paradigmatic violence against black bodies cannot be analogized or reconciled with paradigmatic violence against colored bodies that are not black, against non-black women, and um, LGBT people are not black. And that's that's the that's the core of the we and the what. And the major point here is that um, slavery, once we understand it as, you know, when, when, when Marx makes this, this, this breakthrough, he says, you can't touch value. You can't even say what it is because when people say value, they're actually talking about price. He says, we need to split the hair between price and value so we understand what value is. And then he says, what is value? Value is the extraction of labor time. That's what value is. And it gets turned into a word called price. But we have to understand how value, why is one book more expensive than another book? It has to do with the magnitude of labor power that has been extracted to go into that. That is a highly ephemeral, highly immaterial understanding of a paradigm. And so we've said the same thing, building on Patterson's book, that slavery is not chains. Slavery is not even someone being owned by someone else, precisely because everyone is an object of possession for everyone, and everyone is a subject for possession. It's just that the slave can never own his, her, or their bodies, or their things. And slavery, then, is something that does not need chains, handcuffs, whips, coffles to exist. Slavery can exist well beyond 1865 if we understand it both libidinally in terms of the collective unconscious and materially, and we understand it as a relational dynamic um, and not as a moment in history. So that's, and so what I, coming full circle to your other point, Aisha, is that I think that Fanon doesn't have this language in 1952. And 
what we would argue is that even people in places like Ghana who did not go to the slave coffles were slaves if you understand slavery as a relational dynamic of natal alienation, general dishonor, and openness to gratuitous violence. Those are three elements. Natal alienation, which is to say, is not to say you don't think you have a family. It is to say that in the collective unconscious, you cannot be seen as a familial, as a filial being. That's number one. The second is general dishonor, which is to say you are positioned as being without honor, whereas other people of, of, of oppressed people are positioned as being dishonorable when they resist their paradigm of oppression. And the final thing is the most important for, from my standpoint is uh, the structure of violence, which is to say violence against oppressed people who are not black is contingent upon real, imagined, or pro projected transgressions. And it has a utilitarian value. Violence against the working class helps production. Violence against uh, non-black women stabilizes the patriarchal order. Violence against the so-called, in quotation marks, illegal immigrant stabilizes the uh, uh, white hegemony and, and white community. And so those utilitarian, coherent needs for the violence against those oppressed people does not exist with blackness. Violence against black people is necessary for the psychic renewal of everyone else. That's the main bedrock claim. And we would also say that whereas many black people have experienced colonialism in the way that say the Vietnamese have also, right? What is also layered on top of that is the paradigm of slavery. As long as your brain can take slavery away from the experience of chains and plantations. That's actually uh, very interesting. Yes, because in um, Wretched of the Earth, uh, Fennin talks about um, the being resisting the colonial violence, and then they get uh, have the um, wrath that's unleashed upon them. Um, and I can't help but think about, um, for example, the difference in colonization in India versus Congo, where they literally, it, Congo is so grotesque, um, where they like chopped off hands and traded dead hands as currency. Um, so, yes. Uh, can you expand upon that? Well, I, so so you've made two really really vital points, and I, I want to I want to get to the Congo hands chopping off that. So I hope I don't forget. I'm 64 and I'm getting Alzheimer's. So we'll, we'll remind you. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that I think that when, when Fanon goes to Algeria, he does something that a lot of black people do which is to say he overcompensates with his generosity towards other suffering people. And um, the historical record is that the Algerians that he fought alongside with did not reciprocate that sense of brotherhood to him. 
And so what do I mean by he overcompensated? Do I mean that he told lies in The Wretched Earth? No. I mean, that book, I've been reading that book since I was 12 years old uh, when the Black Panthers gave it to me as a study guide, right? Um, what I mean is that in Black Skin, White Mask, he was on to something similar but radically different than what he was on to in The Wretched of the Earth. In Black Skin, White Mask, he was, he, he starts, the, why does he write that first book? He writes that first book because he's saying to himself, I'm married to this white woman and uh, we're getting hell all over the place. And I see in her symptoms of a superiority complex in all white people. She's not performing those symptoms. Otherwise they couldn't have such a wonderful relationship. And she's a down French communist. And I see in me, myself, symptoms of what he un unkindly calls lactification or clinically would call a hallucinatory whitening, which is the unconscious of the black saying to the black psyche, one's own mind saying to oneself, here's the imperative for your life, turn white or disappear. So he says, all right, I'm a med student. I'm, a, I'm a trained to be a psychiatrist. I'm going to put metaphorically my wife on the couch and put myself on the couch. By that, I mean, he, he, he does psychoanalytic work on uh, greater or lesser degrees of about 500 different people, white and black, you know, so that I can figure out how through psychoanalysis and psychiatry, I can rid the white psyche of its superiority complex, even amongst progressives that lives in the unconscious. And I can rid the black psyche of lactification or, or hallucinatory whitening. All right. That's, then he hits upon something in that book. He hits upon, especially in chapter five and then later in chapter uh, six, uh, chapter five in some translations called The Fact of Blackness and chapter six is the, the Negro and Psychopathology. And what he hits upon is that as a prototype, uh, my wife lives in, as a, as, a, as a woman, she's oppressed, but she lives in a world of structural violence that cannot be reconciled with, with, with the world that I live in. In fact, the black imago can be harnessed by the collective white psyche as, uh, to put it in lay terms, as, a, as an unconscious scapegoat, which is called um, uh, a, 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 a psychic point of destination for what's called aggressivity inside of any community, okay? And he says, but he's so traumatized by that discovery that um, he doesn't really form it into a coherent theory because if he did, he would have to say, he would have to grapple with something. He's a very young man. He's like 25 or something, right? He'd have to grapple with something that I love this woman, but she is structurally my antagonist. And that goes against the grain of his philosophical training, which is humanism. He believes all people are humans, and he hasn't made the Afro-pessimist turn that suggests that human is a construct, and as a construct, it needs its antithesis, and that he is the embodiment of that antithesis. But what we have said, and that's why I would introduce him to David Marriott if I went to heaven and met him, because through the works of David Marriott, Marriott has ex excavated those cul-de-sacs where Fanon runs up against the fact that anti-blackness cannot be cured through dialogue cannot be eradicated through communication. It will take the kind of violence that was necessary to produce it, to end it. All right, 
But then he and his wife go to Algeria, and immediately, what I believe is that the trauma of the failure of what he had intended to do, which is to say, create a humanistic uh, treatise on how to cure the black psyche and the white psyche and bring these couples, these two together, that trauma is, is kind of shunted aside and he takes on the structural paradigmatic problem of suffering of the Algerian people, not the black. And at the center of the, of the, of the, of the trauma of suffering for the Algerian people is not what's at the center of blackness. At the center of blackness, it's the dispossession of everything, psyche, name, cosmology, um, the incapacity, the inability to be seen as a human subject in the eyes of others. At the, at the center of Algerian suffering is the dispossession of land. And so he writes this book mainly through ventriloquizing uh, Algerianness. And, and I want to say that there's, there are contrapunctual aspects to the biographical and intellectual history that I'm not touching on because it's so long. Um, but I think it does, it does show uh, that this notion of, of, of what the Africans, uh, the, the Africans, the Bantu people, from West Africa that cuts across to East Africa and then down to Southern Africa, they call Ubuntu, which is goodwill, brotherhood and sisterhood, a, a sense of open arm ge generosity to whomever you meet. I think this Ubuntu uh, that black people carried with us over into the Western Hemisphere goes too far in the wretched of the earth because he forgets the dead end that he ran into in um, black skin, white mask. And I'm not saying that Afro-pessimism solves that dead end. It does the exact opposite. It, it's like it picks a scab to let all the pus run out and explains what that dead end is. And, and so the dead end, though, to the second part of your question, is actually um, important for the Congo. Because one of the things that we see in the manifestation of black African colonialism is the pleasures of the excess of black bodily mutilation. Let me put it again. The pleasures of the excess of black bodily mutilation. And this is something that a Marxist analysis cannot actually help us with. This is what we are saying in Afro-pessimism when people say, if we have more videos of cops... Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, people were saying if we have more videos of cops killing people, then we could use that to adjudicate. No. Uh, and I'm saying that it's these the visual spectacle of these deaths actually work on two levels in two parts of the topography of the mind. In the pre-conscious mind, they act as horrible episodes that need to be brought to court. But in the unconscious mind, they produce psychic healing for the rest of the world. And I can say more about that later. Um, so, okay, since you're speak, speak about the gratuitous mutilation of um, uh, black human beings, um, can we talk about the difference in ways colonialism looked in say, Congo versus literally any other country besides Congo? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I, I, th I think that, um, I think that, you know, the King of Belgium and, and the people there, I, I, I think of the Congo situation as, as analytically closer to the third term of slavery. Remember, slavery is not chains and working on plantations, essentially. And the third term of slavery is gratuitous violence. And when we say gratuitous violence, what we mean by that is that um, if you say there's a, there, are lynching, there, there are lynchings in this, where I live in the Southwest of, of Chicana, Chicano people in the first half of the 20th century, these were, these were tied to um, a sense of migratory encroachment. You know, they're coming across our, in quotation marks, borders and things like that. And so it gets back to um, the violence of, of colonialism, quote, normally, would be a violence that is um, in some way linked to the need of the mother country to keep the flow of natural resources coming out of the country and to make sure that the production of products in the colonized country is not, is not vertically integrated so that you have raw materials that do not get made into final retail materials in the colonial country, but go to Europe to, for, to help um, um, make more manufacturing jobs. Okay, so there's a sense, S-E-N-S-E, -S -E, to a lot of colonial violence. And the Congo, though, looks to me more like social death than, essentially, than colonialism. Because the violence is, what, what we're arguing is that we cannot think of anti-black violence as a form of discrimination. We have to think of anti-black violence as rituals of pleasure and community building. And that's how I would say, um, that's, what, that's what I would draw upon to think more deeply about the Belgian violence in the Congo. For me, what was really surprising is that um, Major Kurtz is actually a real human being named Leon Favel, and his violence is a lot more than any fiction could imagine what he unleashed upon in the Congo. And yes, um, it, 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 it would like, I guess, boggle the mind of somebody who did, who does not, uh, who has never, like, it's hard to imagine it in through the second hand. Uh, and sadly, uh, if the, am I making sense? Yes, completely. I get you. Yes. Okay. Can you address yeah. that? <laughs> uh, sort of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as opposed to talking about the Congo more specifically, let, let me say the, the analytic point that, that I would use to, to think about these things anywhere in the globe one of, one of, one of, if we just take the, the movie here, um, made by the black British filmmaker, Steve McQueen, called 12 Years a Slave. Um, one of the things I point out in my new book, Afro-Pessimism, is that uh, when the screenwriter and the director actually read the memoir, 12 Years a Slave, they were struck with something that they decided either consciously or unconsciously 
to leave on the cutting room floor. That was the violence. One of, one of the things that, that Solomon Northrup says in 12 Years a Slave, in the book, he says, I hear the howls and screams of people being whipped up and down the river throughout the night. That's one thing. The second thing he says is that Mary and Edwin Epps, uh, if people have seen the movie, at the, towards the end of the movie, uh, that's the lamp, last plantation that, that um, Solomon is on, and a woman named Patsy, who is being raped repeatedly by Edward Epps, Edwin Epps, the, um, the master, uh, he whips her into unconsciousness. And throughout the film, he has been goaded to whip her by his white wife, because in the film, she's jealous of the uh, sexual relation that uh, Patsy is having with her husband. So in other words, what the film has done with this is it's turned it into something very coherent that the spectator can understand, which is called a love triangle. But what the book does with this is it disaggregates that coherence. And it says, actually, the Epsis had children. You don't have that in the film. And the children and Mary and her husband would come to our quarters periodically and just pluck us out of bed, individuals out of bed, to whip us in front of the slave cabin on their way to having a picnic. So what has he done here? He's talked about slavery as going on through the night. That doesn't make, that's, that doesn't make any kind of coherent sense if you only have a Marxist understanding of slavery, which is to say that it is to, it is to get the most productivity for the least investment. Because if you're whipping someone throughout the night, they're not going to be good laborers in the morning. And actually, Karl Marx writes about his two years in the United States in which he says, I can't understand, I can't understand the violence of a factory and the violence of strike breaking. I cannot understand the violence of the Southern plantation because it, it's actually a violence that shoots productivity in the foot. Why does he say that? Because he doesn't have in 1858, whenever he's in New York working for the New York Herald, he doesn't have a theory of the collective unconscious. He doesn't have a theory of violence as a set of rituals that makes a dividing line between us and them. And so the filmmakers then thinking, we've got to translate this story to the general audience. They actually leave out the most essential nature of the relation that comes out of that book, which is that anti-black violence is a family bacchanal of pleasure. It's not, it cannot be made coherent by saying this woman is sleeping with my husband. It is actually something that sustains the unity of the white family at the level of filiation and then spanning your wings further out at the level of community. And this is one of the things that David Merritt has brought up in his own books. Want more great interviews with scholars, journalists, and activists who weren't approved by Blinken's State Department? Subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com to check out other episodes of the podcast and our newsletter. That's historically.substack.com. Do you find yourself asking yourself, what is to be done? Well, the answer is easy if it's Sunday. 
Catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, and YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov by tuning into our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv, rockfin.com, and YouTube. That's twitch.tv forward slash historically, rockfin.com forward slash historically, and search for us on YouTube. It is what is to be done on Sundays. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I was wondering if we could mildly switch a little bit gears about just yourself, but also tie it with what you just said. You did some work with the ANC and you were in apartheid South Africa. Um, how has, um, I, I guess, you, your work with the in South Africa transformed the what you've witnessed into what you theorized in, as Afro-pessimism? Well, when I was in South Africa, um, 89 uh, through 96, this was what people don't really know about in the West, the uh, most brutal time in South African history. Most people think of it as the most peaceful time to transition, Mandela's release, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about um, the uh, political murders from 1948 to 1994, just inside the country. Now, outside the country, the white state killed 1.5 million people in Zimbabwe, Mozambique, uh, Botswana, you know, um, various places, Namibia, in their uh, pursuit as they would put it, of ANC insurgents. But inside the country, uh, the apartheid system, there were 28,000 political murders uh, and 90% of them on the side of revolutionary forces that happened from 1948 to 1994. What a lot of people don't know, uh, the statistics from Human Human Rights Watch is that about 21,000 of those 28,000 murders happened between 1990 in 1994. So this was the time of the killing fields. Um, I was, had the honor of being the second American to hold elected office in the above ground structures of the African National Congress. Uh, The first person was a woman named Mattie Hall, and then her hyphenated Zuma, X-U-M-A, who in the 1940s was a a college student or recent graduate uh, from a black university. And uh, the president of the ANC, who was the Nelson Mandela of that time, was Dr. Zuma, Dr. X-U-M-A. And he came here to meet with the NAACP. There was a lot of work between the ANC and the NAACP. Uh, where the NAACP was helping the ANC think about how to organize politically, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And so he came here to do more of that contact and to uh, raise money. And she, Maddie Hall, went on trips with him around the country trying to raise money. And and then she went back to South Africa. Uh, They were married. And what people don't know is that a Black American woman was the first president of the African National Congress Women's League, which is... um, what Winnie Mandela became later on. So I was elected. I didn't hold that high office. I would be uh, like if there were a five-person uh, political commissar uh, for um, 
uh, Manhattan and the five boroughs. It was, it was like Johannesburg and the 16 townships. Uh, I held that position. Uh, but I also worked in doing psychological warfare, secret propaganda, and covert operations in an underground cell, which was um, run by um, trained insurgents who actually, <laughs> funny enough, students of mine at University of Witzwatersrand who had been sent to uh, North Korea, uh, Libya, uh, where was the other place where she was sent? Uh, as a Soviet Union in Bulgaria to, to train and they came back and formed a cell and they recruited me into that. What I will say is that um, there are two times in my life to directly answer your question in which I came in contact with a huge swath of people who were not dedicated to things like uh, defunding the police or uh, a higher minimum wage, but who were, who were committed to the destruction of the political order in which they lived. And the first time I came into contact was in 68 with uh, black radicals in Seattle, and then 69, black radicals in Detroit, and the Panthers in Chicago later that year, and the Panthers in Berkeley, California. I was 13 and 14 years old in that, well, 12 to 14 years old in that period. And then the second time was in South Africa. I had been to the Soviet Union in 1973 at the age of 17, uh, but that was a language study trip, and I didn't and the Soviet Union was rather dead politically, much to my chagrin. But South Africa was another place, much like Detroit, Seattle, Chicago, Berkeley in 68, 69, and 70. South Africa was another place in which people talked about revolution without irony in their voice. People didn't talk about making economic reforms. They talked about overturning the state. They talked about uh, reneging on IMF World Bank loans. and so. I can just say that at the age of 33, I was, uh, uh, 1989, I was 33, I was re-energized. I was re-energized re and my backbone was stiffened so that um, I could not go into my 30s and 40s speaking a language of political reform. And for that, I'm very grateful. Um, I did political education workshops on Antonio Negre, uh, Karl Marx, and... Um, and Antonio Gramsci for uh, underground cells uh, for, for the Communist Party until they kicked me out of those workshops because I wasn't articulating the, the line of the South African Communist Party. Uh, and then for a place called the Workers' Library, which was a communist uh, resource, book resource center for any worker, regardless if they were ANC, PAC, or not affiliated, um, and for underground cell that I worked with. And I can say that that um, sticking, to not, you know, it's, when you come back to America, what you find is that um, I think left-wing people are so unconsciously and psychically terrorized by this beast yes. that they can't find their voice to be anti-American. They have to find their voice to be progressive or radical. And yes! <laughs> So, so that's one thing South Africa did for me. I, I, I hate this country and to the core, and I never write anything that, that gives it any, any value. <laughs> oh, okay, so um, I'm sorry, because this hits me really deeply, which is exactly why I started this podcast. Um, because what happened is that I was working with a congressional candidate in South Carolina, and I just realized a lot of people, if they kind of understood what was going on in history, like they would be totally, they just would 
to have a completely different outlook on what you can and cannot trust. So I did not actually seek to be a Marxist when I started this podcast. I just wanted to get original historical documents and show it to people as opposed to a secondary historical documents. And then the more I saw original historical documents, the more horrified I got at the crimes of the U.S. And so I'm going to say that there is very little analogies you can do to um, uh, the unique ability of the U.S. to cause harm all over the world. For example, just a few weeks ago, somebody asked AOC whether or not she thinks of socialism as Venezuela or the Soviet Union. And she was like, no. And I was like, why don't you want, like, they had um, like a 12% literacy rate in the Soviet Union uh, before the, when the czar was around, and then they went to like uh, pure illiteracy. And so it's like, um, so yes, the left has imbibed all the Cold War propaganda about, um, uh, and capitalistic um, moralizing of the like violence where um, somehow um, like you can ignore the daily violence and then like one act of retaliation against a fascist is seen as like an unthinkable crime. And so this like really hits me personally and sorry if I just ranted. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're so right. And I, I, I actually think that, um, I think there's something really deep and, and traumatizing going on in the unconscious of, and I, and I don't put my, I don't put myself outside of this, but going on in the unconscious of, of people who are on the left in this country. I think we know, even though we don't talk about it, what you just said, we know that the place that we call home, where we were born and raised, is responsible for more murders around the world than Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, and Attila the Hun all wrapped together. There's never been a murder machine like this country ever in the history of the world. And yet, and yet, we cannot find it in our stomach to be in it and to be of it. We always find ourselves stuttering and trying to find some hyper. And I think that's because my friend Jared Sexton has said this when we were teaching, uh, when we were teaching at UC Berkeley as graduate students. He said, I, he's talking about white kids. He says, I think they understand just how murderous this place that they think they love is. And I think it scares the shit out of them. That's why they don't speak up. Oh, you're probably right. Um, and um, like I said, I'm, uh, and yes, it's not reform, like accepting the capitalist paradigm on morality to me seems um, ridiculous. Um, and we should not do that. And yet we see so many people who are, don't benefit from capitalism, who are not white or who also accept their paradigm. And it hits me back to Gramsci's hegemony. And um, so how would you say, I guess it was, how do you, I know you wrote, a, uh, you wrote about how Gramsci fits into this. Like, so how does, um, how, how did you modify Gramsci's theory of hegemony, which I totally love? Well, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 uh, I love Gramsci, but I don't think that it explains, I think it explains suffering of 
a global working class, but I don't think it explains black suffering. And here's why. So, uh, so I, one of my early articles in 2002, which interestingly enough, kind of accidentally kind of propelled me into public view because it was uh, photocopied and folded and made into a zine by some people who I don't know, I, and, and passed around in encampments in Oakland and New York uh, when the Occupy movement was happening. So the Occupy movement started reading this, and I started getting all this you know, attention. And, and basically what I was saying is that, I won't recapitulate, recapitulate the article, I'll just say it in my own words now. If you read Sadia Hartman's um, Scenes of Subjection, and she's at Columbia University, as I said before, she just won, uh, last year she won the MacArthur Genius Award. You read her Scenes of Subjection, especially um, the chapter on Black women and rape. What you find is that um, she's making, she's telling case studies about Black women trying to bring rape cases to the courts when their masters have raped them. And one of the points that she comes up with is that these cases are thrown out, not because the judge and the jury say they didn't happen. They, everyone acknowledges that it happened, but the judge and the jury say, and this is something that Justice Taney also says in the 250-page Dred Scott decision, you have to understand the Black is not a human subject, which is to say the Black does not embody rights and claims that can be violated because the Black does not embody consent. If the Black embodied consent, then we would have to ask the question, has consent been abrogated? So it's a two-way street. Did, did, did the Black person, the Black woman in this case, give her consent? And secondly, if she did not give her consent, was her consent abrogated? Then there would be something called injury. And so what the courts are very clear about is that black bodies cannot be injured because they have no consent to be abrogated because they are not subjects of jurisprudence because they're not human subjects, which is to say that uh, how do they exist if they do not exist as human subjects? They exist as third arms of other people, extensions of the master classes prerogative. And this is very, and so what this does is it throws a monkey wrench into the Gramscian theory only when you apply it to blackness, not when you apply it to anyone else. Because Gramsci's hegemony, just like slavery for Orlando Patterson, Gramsci's hegemony has three constituent elements. First, influence, then leadership, then consent. So it's the influence of a class, the capitalist class, the leadership of the capitalist class's ideas, like meritocracy and hard work, and the uh, spontaneous consent of the working class to, those le- to that leadership and to those ideas. This is what capitalism needs after it's become stabilized. It needs, it, it, it rules by hegemony. But what Sadia Hartman breaks out and explains to us is that black consent is never a consideration. The world fears, is phobic, towards black flesh, black bodies. The world 
oppression is not trying to elicit black consent to its oppression. So that means there's a structurally different way of suffering for the black slash slave than for the worker. And that's what I tried to say in Gramsci's Black Marx is not that he's wrong. Oh, he's hell right. I mean, I've been teaching him for years, but that violence comes to the working class when they embark upon counter-hegemonic projects. Violence does not come to blackness based upon the elaboration of counter-hegemonic projects. Violence against black people is necessary as ritual and repetition, not in response to black ideas. Um, and... I would have to agree in, I guess I don't, uh, I'm, I'm going to make like a technical disclaimer, like in like, yes, majority of the places in the world, yes. Um, it does seem extremely gratuitous uh, in a way that it seems to defy logic for, through like, I guess, a purely profit-driven sense. Um, and um, uh, so um, I, I guess, uh, uh, okay. Um, you, you don't have to comment on this. Um, I one of my favorite authors is Gerald Horn. Um, we had him on here, and he wrote um, uh, the Counter Revolution of um, 1776 and the Dawning of the Apocalypse. Do you agree with his assess? I love him, and he's literally one of my favorites. Um, but do you agree with his assessment about the emergence of blackness, or how would you characterize it differently? Um, okay, so that, I, that book came out a few years ago, and uh, <laughs> my wife read it from cover to cover. I read the first part and the last part, and I'm going to go out on a limb here because I, I think that Gerald Horne, first of all, he's a brilliant scholar and a fantastic historian, and I take a lot from, his, from historians, but um, I, I think that we have a a, a disagreement about the last point that you just made. I, I'm trying to remember how. So let me, rather than say exactly, one of, one of the issues that, that I get from reading Gerald Horn's work is that um, the essential nature of suffering for him is, is economic dispossession. And um, I don't, I think that's really vital and important, but I don't think that's the essential nature of black suffering. Um, I, I have a, a more psychic um, and libidinal, libidinal understanding of it coupled with violence. I can explain more about that later. But I would also say that I, um, it gets back to this whole question, which Afro-pessimism is making people debate, which is to say, is black a, an identity or a position? And I believe, just extrapolating from, from what I remember about that book, I believe that, that he would suggest that blackness is, a, is an identity inside of the working class. And I, yes, he does. <laughs> and, and I would disagree with that. And I, and I, and I, I don't think he get, I actually think that's an assertion that cannot be proven. Mm -hmm. um, I, but I also think that many scholars think black oppression starting in 1452 with the transatlantic slave trade. And I think blackness, we think blackness as a, as a paradigmatic position, again, not an identity, a position that begins in 625 AD 
in this period from 625 AD to, to all the way, you know, beyond 1452, when a constellation of communities, beginning with the Gulf state Arabs, uh, then, then the, um, the, East, the East Indians, the Iraqis, uh, the Iranians, and Moroccan Jews, uh, I think that that dynamic, which begins to see Africa as a place of slaves, they all vamp on Africa moving up from this period. And I think that this consensus amongst these states uh, predates this consensus that blackness is abjection, blackness is slaveness, blackness is a flesh possession of our communities, uh, that, and that destruction of black bodies is ritualistic and important to the development of these societies. I think that predates what so many uh, American historians talk about in terms of the Middle Passage, so, so that we have a situation in which blackness as a paradigm and as a slave position already exists when the Portuguese come to the other side of the continent. And we have to think, and if we think of it like that, then we have to say that anti-Black violence doesn't produce the scale of economic wealth. And that's not the first portion of the oppression for those communities. Uh, 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 one of my former students is Professor Cornell, uh, Parisa Vaziri is uh, finishing a book in which she talks about um, the black slave population in southwestern Iran and why, and she, asked, and, she's, and she makes the claim that, you know, you really can't have an, 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 an Iranian identity without at the absolute end, the opposite of, of that identity being the black position of Basra, sorry, of, of southwestern uh, Iran. So, yeah, I, I think that we have a fundamental difference in that he would think of blackness as an identity inside of the working class. I would say that black people are positioned as workers for the most part, but all blacks are slaves. Remember, we have to el eliminate um, chattel slavery from our thinking about what slavery is. And that would include uh, Oprah Winfrey, Condoleezza Rice, and George Floyd. <laughs> I guess for me, the way I think about it is that they, okay, it's not they per se, but there is a reason why Obama is the first um, black president as, and there's a reason why Malcolm X was assassinated at age 35. And so we see that the, there is a set of um, voices that they allow, they as in power uh, uh, consciously or unconsciously allowed to be um, main uh, be a part of the framing versus what they do to silence um uh, silence people and so yeah um what i see is that often people who have the black identity in order to succeed must be uh i don't know i don't is traitor an appropriate word or what's a word you'd use to describe them <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I don't think it would be incorrect. So I'm trying to speak with two tongues at the same time, like a double impose. I want to say two things at the same time, so I'll say them separately. Um, I'm not down with anything that Obama has to say. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've said it before. You know, I, I, you know, my mother asked me why you didn't vote for Obama. I said, well, <laughs> I, I voted for one milquetoast Negro and Nelson Mandela, and I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> um, but I also don't think Obama is his own man. No. And what I mean by that is that the blue dot, there's a, it's highly documented in a book by a black Brazilian. Oh my God, I'm, his name, I think it's, um, it'll, it'll come to me. He, he's a black Brazilian uh, uh, sociologist who teaches at Duke University. Anyway, my point is that, that he wrote this book and he said, you know, I'm, these are my words, that basically Obama was like Ovaltine. You pour a little in and then pour some milk in and you stir it, you know. Um, like your instant solution. And, and how does he document this? Well, Vernon Jordan, who is like one of the black power brokers, also a widget, a widget implement of the Blue Dog Democrats. The Blue Dog Democrats, Gore and um, people like Gore and Clinton and others, you know, came to Vernon Jordan and they said, we had a crisis here. We can't win without the black vote. However, if a black person emerges as a presidential candidate in the primary one more time, we're going to have a situation like 1984. When Jesse, Jesse Jackson. Jesse yes. Jackson. We can't have that because the, and, and they said the Congressional Black Caucus are too radical. And we oh, can't God. have someone like that. And so <laughs> Vernon Jordan says, there's this dude who's in the state legislature of Illinois. And I think he's the perfect person for us to run. Mm-hmm. And so they go to, Il- Vernon goes to Illinois and he brings uh, 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 this, this no-name uh, state rep- representative to a big swanky penthouse in New York City for a private sit-down with the Blue Dog Democrats, Clinton, Gore, and, and the whole posse. And at the end of that thing, they're like, whoa, Jack, this is our guy. <laughs> this is our guy. And so they, they run him for senator. Uh, then they have him speak on the convention floor, and next thing you know, he's running for president. So he's just a tool. But he also suffers the way Ascension Tool suffers. In other words, there are so many assassination plots against him. Uh, the, the thing that Jared Sexton says all the time is, you can be black and become president, but you cannot be black and become presidential. The cl- yes. The collective unconscious will not give you what in psychoanalytic terms is called the power of the phallus. A a white woman like Madeleine Albright or Hillary Clinton can hold, possess the phallus before a black man can. I have to agree in that there are um, many... uh, uh, yes, I mean, there are, uh, uh, I mean, just based on excuses that people make for Obama, uh, as in, um, uh, uh, yeah, yes, as in he's, his function was to, like, make sure that uh, he kept the order and not seek justice as to, like, not inflame white tension so um yes. yeah I, and so I, I we see we saw that in ferguson where he actually just kind of used uh, i'm not kidding uh 
if, if you guys don't believe me, I have a video um, where he used the word thugs against um, people, uh, just the way he classified violence. Um, and um, so I, I agree. Um, and how do we, in that case, like, do you have a, I guess, upcoming equivalent of the communist manifesto as to where do we go next or what is to be done? <laughs> <laughs> no, Afro-Pessimist doesn't do that. Uh, because one of the things that we argue is, and this gets, really brings us full circle to the beginning of our conversation, mm -hmm. um, we want the end of this world and a new world. But, and we're working for that. However, theoretically, we cannot see how you can use words in the symbolic order, words in the episteme, to think about what life would look like on the other side. Because on the other side of capitalism, Marx can imagine the other side. Radical feminism can, can imagine the other side of Oedipus and patriarchy. What's on the other side of Oedipus and patriarchy? It's the reorganization of the family where the word woman and man no longer exists. Those are constructs. There's no such thing as a woman. There's no such thing as a man. These are semiotic complexes which can be undone through the, the destruction of Oedipus and reorganize kinship around different identities and different power valences that are more trans than cis. That can be imagined. You can imagine the other side of capitalism, which is to say that just as the other side of radical feminism will destroy the word woman and destroy the word man, the other side of radical uh, uh, Marxism, the word worker and the word capitalist, those words don't exist anymore because those positions don't exist anymore. In fact, what's on the other side is the proletariat. Now, the antagonist for blackness is the human. And so on the other side of anti-blackness, there are no black people. Just like before 625 AD, in that period that I spoke about, there were no black people. There were no black people and there was no Africa. There was the Ashanti, the Buganda, the Maasai, the Igbo, but blackness did not exist as a position, and the word Africa as a, as a continent did not exist as a word, just like Turtle Island was not, is, you know, was not America. So, but, but if you say that one, at this point in history, there is no conceptual framework to think through the other side of the human versus black antagonism doesn't mean there's not another side. It just means you cannot articulate it because it would be the end of an entire epistemological way of understanding the world, as opposed to Marxism, which will bring about the end of, the, of an entire economic way of seeing the world, not the end of the entire episteme of the world, not the end of the entire world relations. See, blackness threatens the socius at every single level. The worker threatens the socius at the level of political economy. Sorry, that actually makes perfect 
sense to me. Um, and are there any, is there anything that I have not gotten through where that you think it should be addressed to our audience? And thank you so much again for like coming on this Saturday. But um, is there anything that we should address that we haven't addressed about either your book or just the topic of blackness in general or Afro-pessimism? Well, I would say um, that your listeners, one of the things that this is, as I, as I was saying at the very beginning, um, this, is a tra- this is a trade book. This is a book that is sold in mainstream bookstores. And so the prose is meant to be inviting. For, you know, when you write a trade book, you're supposed to write a book that is pitched at a level no higher, they, this is a guideline, no higher than a junior in college reading your book on a bus without access to a thesaurus, okay? (laughs) Okay. Okay, so it's hard to write that kind of book and explain critical theory because critical theory requires, if you read my Afro-pessimism, my second book, Red, White, and Black, or if you read Jared Sexton's books or Cynthia Hartman's books, or her first book, rather, or if you read David Marriott's book, it's going to require that you've actually, since we're critiquing the structure of Marxism and incorporating some of it, and we're critiquing the structure of psychoanalysis and incorporating and critiquing post-colonialism and incorporating, you're going to have to have read Edward Said. You're going to have to have read Marx. You're going to have to have read Lacan. Um, you're going to have to understand the basic arguments to understand how Afro-pessimism is making an intervention to say that these things really explain suffering very, very well, but they don't explain Black suffering to a satisfactory degree. You're going to have to read all that stuff to understand our academic books. So this book, you don't have to read all that stuff. Um, and because I had to pitch it at a level that could be sold to people buying it in Barnes and Nobles and tell stories. And so I think there are a lot of nice engaging stories in it, but I would ask the reader to um, realize that because they wanted readability for this book, they did not put in numbered footnotes. So nothing clutters the page like footnote number one or that kind of thing. And, and yet, at the end of the book, you find uh, phrases or half sentences in uh, a kind of works-cited way, which refer to phrases or half sentences, uh, parts of sentences throughout the book that I have taken from Marx or taken from Jarrett Sexton or taken from Sadia Hartman. And I would encourage the reader to be aware of the gloss, the, 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 the work cited at the end of the book, since they're not going to be made aware of it reading the book, so that they can then deepen their understanding by reading the people I'm quoting, who are the foundational theorists of Afro-pessimism, teaching at various universities throughout the world. And finally, there are people who have not written or not published yet, uh, specifically uh, uh, Salamawit Terefe, that's T-E-R-R-E-F-E at Tulane University, uh, Patrice Douglas at Duke University, uh, Jay Austin Williams, she's at Bucknell. Um, and there are a lot of people who will, uh, uh, Lynette uh, Park, who uh, is now at Pittsburgh, who are going to have these books up in the next year to five years which will be like the second wave of Afro-pessimism. Uh, highly theoretical, but I think worthy of engagement. Okay, uh, may I, I just thought of one, new, one more question. I hope, uh, I know that we, uh, we're going to have to let you go soon. I'm so sorry to keep you. But 
Um, I guess, for example, um, under with colonialism, of course, like you can have somebody like a Che Guevara, who's a, I don't know if ally is the right word, but, but uh, like a non-black, um, uh, sub, I, I, well, whatever he was. Is it possible, un, uh, like under your theory, for there to be non-black allies or whatever, like, like a, I'm not sure. Like, so is it possible or is that not possible? Well, that is a dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> a dilemma which I take up uh, very directly in chapters five and six of the book, mm-hmm. um, dealing with a multiracial political um or a, a seminar or a conference rather in Santa Cruz, California in chapter five and dealing with my, my relationship uh, to my teacher and mentor, uh, Edward Said, who I have great uh, ad- admiration for and appreciation of and great differences with. And so what I would say to this is, yes, in theory, to your answer, answer to your question, and almost always no in practice. And why is it almost almost always no in practice. And that is because the coalition, the multiracial coalition, often demands that everyone in the coalition articulate their suffering in a way that is common to everyone in the room. And I think that the coal, and this is how Afro-pessimism actually came about, was because the people I described at the very beginning uh, were doing political work um, in uh, San Francisco, Berkeley, and Oakland from 1997 to 2000 and four-ish, and finding that um, the coalition was actually a space that shut down the articulation of, of Black voices when those voices tried to, tried to break apart this phrase called Black and Brown, tried to break that phrase apart and say how violence against Black bodies may, be, may experience the same bullet that uh, Brown bodies experience, but the paradigm of suffering was radically different. And so we actually developed Afro-pessimism by listening to the symptoms of of, of muzzled Black voices in the coalitions that we were doing political work on behalf of political prisoners, on behalf of of youth that were being sent to adult prison, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that what the coalition has to understand is that allyship requires non-Black people of color having an open heart and open ear to an analysis that suggests that the paradigm of Black suffering cannot be analogized with the paradigm of Native American suffering, cannot be analogized with the paradigm of colored immigrant suffering, and why that is the case. And we could all fight a fight, but we have to understand that Afro-pessimism is making an argument. It's fine to have a view that doesn't agree, but you've got to actually come with an, with an, an, an analysis as opposed to what we normally get, which is to say, ah, Afro-pessimism is being divisive to the coalition. No, the coalition is quashing Black voices. I would have to concur in many, many ways. Um, in that, yes, the most, I guess, oppressed, if we're going to have a revolutionary mentality, like they're going to have to take precedence. And once again, 
Thank you so much for coming. And we would, uh, uh, what are you working on next? And we'd love to have you back on next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I I won't tell you the plot, but I, I, these, these themes have been finding their way into a novel that I'm writing. I've, I've been, you know, I was actually thought that I've written two books and used the books to become an associate and to become a full professor. And now I would turn back to uh, a thing I began in 2009 and got 90,000 words out of and then kind of left and came back to, which is a novel. Uh, so I hope to have time to complete that. I mean, I, I still uh, owe Columbia University's about $46,000 of the $80,000 I borrowed for a two-year MFA program. So I want to put those skills to, to greater use in writing fiction. Oh, okay. That I, I am going to be eager. So please let me know when you do end up publishing it and releasing it. And it was a pleasure having you. And what I loved about having you is that, well, for me, it's the big contrast between your idea of race. And um, I also interviewed Daryl Horn a few months ago. So I love that we have both perspectives for our viewers to like listen to and um, con contrast with each other. Um, and yeah, um, so this was like one of the best interviews I've had. So thank you so much. Thank you both. I've enjoyed it. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.